Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. In the mid-1990s, Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs took a walk together, strategizing how Jobs would return to Apple. Ellison wanted to make money, but Jobs wanted something more. Twenty years later, Ellison admitted Jobs was right, saying, It can't be about the money. After a certain point, you can't spend it no matter how hard you try. I know I've tried hard. Staff member Jeff Norris starts the series Dying to Give with this message entitled, Can I Trust God?, which covers Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Thank you for joining us today. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for being a God that we can trust, that we would be able to sing to you, my heart is yours, my heart is yours. Take it all, take it all, my life in your hands. Lord, that's a struggle for many of us, if not all of us. We sing it, but our hearts are often far behind our words. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to sing it with all of our hearts every day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have each week to come before you and to worship you, to open your word together and to have you teach us through your Holy Spirit. Would you do your work in us this morning, in this room and the other venues? Lord, would you have your way with us? Would you soften our hearts? Would you open our minds and our eyes to see and perceive and understand truth? And to see and perceive and understand the beauty of Jesus and our need for him. God, we ask for your blessing over this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I am Jeff Norris, and I still consider myself new here, although I've been here for almost exactly a year, and it's hard for me to believe that it's been a year, and I have absolutely loved it, being on staff at Perimeter. I love being a part of this church. I love being a part of what God's doing here, and I'm so thankful uh, for all of you. And I've gotten to meet some of you in the course of this year, but uh, certainly not all of you. And I look forward to the day that hopefully I can meet you. I'm also incredibly excited and glad to kick off a new series. I'll I'll preach this week and then David will preach next week. And then week after next, Bob will finish us out in this short three-week series. And this series, go ahead and throw it out there, is on giving and money. The hisses can begin now. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't like when preachers preach to us about giving and money. We can't stand it. I actually remember a story of a guy that I knew and when we lived in Alabama and um, he was coming to church at the church I was at. He was coming for a while and then I didn't see him. I ran into him in town one day and I said, hey man, how you doing? I hadn't seen you in a while at, at church. Everything going okay? And he said, yeah, you, just guys, you guys just preach too much about money. We had done two sermons on money in one year. But he heard those two, and he said, that's all I want to hear. And we, we kind of cringe at the idea of talking about money in the church because we assume this. We assume that whenever we preach about money that we are really the undertone of it is give, we want more from you. Give us more. So as David and Bob and I met and collaborated and prayed around this series, we want to make something abundantly clear from the get-go. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. Because we believe that when we begin to look into the scriptures, 
we begin to look at what God has for us and the way in God's economy of things and the way that he set things up, that when we give to God with our finances and really with all of our lives, that there's blessing that comes with that. There is something that he brings into our lives that is a great blessing as we give to him. Randy has made that comment many times over the years. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. So to get us into this topic, I thought I'd start us off by telling you a little bit about something that's had great impact in my life. This is a little book called Whiter Than Snow. You probably can't see the title on the screen because it's so white. You see the little silhouette of a man. Whiter Than Snow, Meditations on Sin and Mercy by Paul Tripp. Some of you have heard of him. I got my hands on this book probably 2006 or seven, somewhere in there. It's a devotional book uh, with lots of chapters, but you really shouldn't even say chapters because each one's about two pages long. And the ninth one in here is called No More If Onlys. And that particular chapter is one that I have gone back to over and over and over again as God does work on my heart. This is what Tripp talks about in that chapter. He says it's easy to go through life with an if-only mindset. And he gives some examples. If only that accident didn't happen. If only I had a better job. If only I had a better boss. If only I had a more loving or understanding spouse. If only I could be married. If only I weren't so shy and insecure. If only my children would listen and obey. If only we had not, if we had not had children so quickly. If only we could have children. If only I had better physical health, if only I had come from a more stable family, and the list goes on and on and on. It is so easy for us to live life in the if-onlys. And many of these if-onlys are good longings and desires because they're a part of the fallen world and the fallen body that we live in. And so there's a, there's a good desire that's mixed up in our if-onlys where we're longing for the day that all things are made new in Christ. And so there's an element of that, but then oftentimes it bleeds into deeper things in that, things that become unhealthy, to where, yes, it's okay to long for a new body and a new heavens and a new earth, but then sometimes what these if-onlys, a lot of times what these if-onlys do is they expose to us, they reveal to us our treasures, what we most treasure, what we most long for. Things that we say that if, if that situation were different, if that circumstance were different, then then life would be everything that I long for it to be. The natural inclination of our hearts is to treasure something more than God. To look to that, whatever that is, whatever that changed circumstance is, changed relationship is, changed situation is, whatever that is, we look to it to provide for us and to give us what God, only God, is intended to give us. We look for comfort and ease and security and safety in these things rather than in God. Our hearts become attached to what we treasure. Therefore, we trust what we treasure. And far too often, far too often, myself included, we trust and treasure something other than God himself. Where we're going this morning, the big idea behind this whole sermon is this. Treasuring Christ involves trusting him. And trusting him involves surrendering to him. And surrendering to him involves every part of our lives, including our money. You see, when we talk specifically about money, for many of us, if we're being honest, 
If I'm being honest, we treasure and trust money and what money can provide more than we treasure and trust God and what he can provide. One of my big, biggest if-onlys in my life to this point, in my adult life, has been around money. I raised support for 13 years. I was a part of a campus ministry, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, crew as it's called now. Many of you have heard of it and even supported staff. Many of you in this room have supported me and my family. My wife grew up here and we have many relationships here and you've supported us. And to that I say thank you. But I just want to be honest with you. I often hated raising support. It, was, it felt like a burden. I tried. I would pray, God, help me see this as an opportunity. And he would always provide. And it certainly stretched my faith in ways that it wouldn't have otherwise. If I didn't raise support, I don't think I would have grown in my faith to the extent that I did. And so I'm thankful for that. But it was not fun. God always provided. I can't remember one month that we ever didn't have what we need, but I always wanted more. Because it was just enough. And I wanted more. I wanted more money to be able to set aside to, to put into savings. I wanted more money to put into a 401k or into a Roth IRA. And I, I see people all around me doing that. And I said, I, I want to be able to do that. And I wanted to be able to put money into a college fund, into retirement. God, if only you would give us more money. If only. See, my if only in a lot of my life and my circumstances is really, if I'm being blunt, if only I were rich. But then I talked with someone recently who is rich, who God's blessed with great resources and finances. You know what he told me? If only I didn't have all this stuff. It's a burden. Life has become harder since becoming rich. And so the point of it all is that here I am longing to be rich, and here he is, he's rich, and we both want something different because the human heart is so fickle and it's never enough. Because what we begin to do is we begin to long for things other than God himself. And it ties in to our money. We're starting the series, like I said, and we've entitled it Dying to Give. The reason we've entitled it this, this title, uh, uh, Dying to Give, is for two reasons. First is we want you guys to understand, and we even want to teach our hearts over again, that biblical giving is sacrificial. It costs something to give to God and to his kingdom. We look at the world around us. We see those who are not followers of Christ around us, and they can spend money on whatever they want to spend money on, and we really want to enter into that way of life with them. But we read the scriptures, and God is calling us to give to him and to his kingdom, and to move from here to here causes us to be sacrificial. We have to die to something. So we're dying to give in that way. But then secondly, in a little bit of a different way, we want it, to be true of this church, and I think it already is in many, many ways, but even more so that, that the people of God at Perimeter Church would be known by others around us, in the community around us, in the greater city of Atlanta, and that these are people who are so eager to give that it could be said of us, man, those, they are dying to give. They are so convinced that there is a living God who is at work in this city and in this world that they are willing to do whatever they need to do to enter into his story and to give be a part of what he's doing. So why talk about money? Why devote an entire series to money and giving? And this is going to sound cliche if you've been in church or around church because you've probably heard a pastor say it, but nevertheless, it's true. Jesus talked a lot about it. 15% of everything Jesus said pertained to money and resources. But even still, why? Why did Jesus even put so much of an emphasis on money? 
want to direct you to answer that question. This is a little book, tiny little book called The Treasure Principle, Unlocking the Secret of Joyful Giving by Randy Alcorn. If you go through membership here at Perimeter, you will get this book as a gift to you. This is, uh, excuse the pun, this is a treasure of a book. It is, it is fantastic in wrapping our minds and our hearts around what it means to be a biblical giver. In this book, he says this. Why do we talk about this? Because, here's why. Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. If we're going to be faithful Bible teachers and Bible studiers, then we have to be faithful to talk about this. So here's what I want to do. To get us to where I think God is leading us this morning, I want to take us to a story that at first you may say, how in the world will that pertain to money and to giving? And I want you to stick with me because in the end I think you'll see the connection. I want to take you to 1 Kings 18, and I don't want you to go there in your Bibles, and it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to tell you the story because it's a lot of Scripture. But for some of you, it's a familiar story. For, the, for others of you, it'll be something that you maybe haven't heard before. I want to take you back to around the time of 850 B.C. I want to take you to the land of Israel, where God's people, the Israelites, are Entering into great, have been entering for about a generation now, into great apostasy and idolatry. At the end of Solomon, King Solomon's reign, he had gotten into a little bit of a pickle. And so what he decided to do is he decided to give some of the northern land of Israel, some of those northern tribes, over to the king of Tyre. King of Tyre, uh, kingdom of Tyre was just above the northern rim of the tribes of Israel. Just above where Mount Carmel sits. And so these people of God who had seen God rescue them out of slavery in Egypt and lead them through the miraculous event of parting the, dead, uh, the Red Sea and then leading them into uh, the promised land and delivering them and doing all these things, they, they had begun to forget all that and begun to worship with these pagan people around them. And so the God of choice for this kingdom of Tyre was Baal, B-A-A-L. And so they would worship the God of Baal, and Baal was the God of agriculture. And it just so happened that during this story that I'm telling you in 1 Kings 18, it's in the midst of three years of drought and famine. The land is desolate. The land is bare. There's nothing growing. There's no life. And people are starving and dying. And so God's people, instead of looking to this God who has delivered them, who has done miracle after miracle, who is the one who has shown himself to be the one true living God over and over and over again, the provider of all things, instead of looking to this God, they are looking to this false God over here, this Baal, this supposed God of agriculture, and they're worshiping him and they're going to him. And here's how they would do that. They would go into the temples of Baal. And the way these temples were set up is that you would make sacrifice, much like the way that they would have to God in the in the temple, in the Hebrew temple. But in this temple, not only would you make sacrifice of an animal, but then you would also, all in the temple would be slave girls or really what ended up practically being prostitutes. And so men would come into the temple and they would make their sacrifice to Baal, but then that wouldn't be enough. They would go and they would sleep with these slave girls and they would seek to impregnate them. And then so what they would do is they would come back to Baal, make sacrifice, sleep with the girl, seek to impregnate her, and then their, their beseeching would be this, Oh, God of Baal, would you uh, impregnate the land and make it fruitful in the same way that I have impregnated this girl and made her fruitful? 
The evil, the immorality, the apostasy was great. And God's people were joining in. And so enter Elijah, prophet of God. God calls Elijah to summon the 450 prophets of Baal who would serve in these temples. And he summons them up onto this Mount Carmel that I mentioned earlier, this right on the edge of where the kingdom of Tyre is and where Israel is. And so there's a collision that's about to take course, take place on the top of this mountain. The God of this world versus the one true God is about to slap together on the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah brings the 450 prophets of Baal together. And a lot of the Israelites gather around because they want to see what's going to happen. And so he tells the prophets, prepare your sacrifice. Put your bull on those stones. Make, it, make a, a sacrifice of stones and put your bull on there. And I'll do the same over here. And then you call down fire from your God and see if he will take the sacrifice through him providing the fire. And I'll do the same and we'll see who wins. Before all that happens, Elijah starts with a question. He doesn't look at the prophets of Baal. He looks at the Israelites who are gathered all around to watch the spectacle. And he asked them this question straight from the text. He says, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? How long will you keep doing this? How long will you say that you're a son, a daughter of the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but yet say that with your mouth, but then with your life, you're over here serving and worshiping this false God. You can't do both. How much longer will you go on limping between two opinions? You cannot serve two masters. And today it's going to end. Fast forward about 850 years. There's another man on another hillside just to the east of Mount Carmel. He's preaching a sermon, a sermon that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus asks almost an identical question. He doesn't blatantly ask it, but the undertone of what he's saying is the same thing. How long will you go limping between two opinions? Let's look at it together. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Turn there in your Bibles. If, if you don't have your Bible, it'll be in your, printed in your bulletin. And if you want to look on the screen, it'll be there as well. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Something that I want you to miss this morning, don't miss it, is is this. It doesn't matter where you go in human history from the beginning of time to to now. It doesn't matter where you go. The inclination of the human heart is to run to something other than God to provide what only he can provide. In Elijah's day, it was running to Baal to give them something that only God could give. In Jesus' day, he was addressing the tendency to do the very same thing with money. And it's still incredibly pertinent for us today how we can begin to love money in such a way 
to, to long for money in such a way that it becomes a God, an idol in our lives. Before we can ever begin to talk about what to do with our money, we have to address the heart issue of how to view our money. And that's what I want to do in the remainder of time that we have together. I want to talk about how do we view our money from the heart level. In the coming weeks, we'll address more of what it looks like in terms of how, what do we do with our money. So I want to ask you three questions from our text. First one is this, where do your treasures lie? Where do your treasures lie? This comes to us from verses 19 and 20. I'll read them again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. There are only two options given to us in this text. Two places where we can lay up our treasures. It's either earth or it's heaven. I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler on Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle. The primary principle that he gives us in the book is this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. The greatest, don't miss this, the greatest deterrent to giving is the illusion that earth is our home. The greatest deterrent to sacrificial biblical giving for the Christian is the, is the illusion that earth is our home. We get caught up in the culture around us. We get caught up in certainly in America and certainly in a part of greater Atlanta that we are in where things are very affluent to where we look at the people around us and we say, I want what they have. And we begin to live just like they live. We don't live in a way that's kingdom-minded oftentimes. We live in a way that's just like everyone else around us, and we're not set apart too often in this way. Where are we investing? Are we investing in things that are not going to last? And some of the things that we invest in, sure, we have to do those. We have to be great stewards with our money. We have to be able to think about things like 401Ks and Roth IRAs, and we do want to set up college funds and things like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that we often invest in, both financially and with any of the resources that God has given us, our time and our talents, and things that will not last. They will burn. As opposed to things that will last, and I'm not just talking about things that will last beyond us to the generations behind us, our kids and their kids and their kids, but things that will last in eternity, things that will allow us to stand before our gracious God and he say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Where do your treasures lie? Secondly, second question, for what does your heart long? Look at verses 21 through 23. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now we get verse 21. We understand that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's language that we get. But this whole I thing, what is, what is it getting at? It's important for us to understand that in the ancient Jewish culture, the I was very closely associated with the heart. And it makes sense when you begin to think about it. Whatever we see, whatever we set our gaze on, whatever it is that we long for is connected to our hearts because what we think on, what we see, what we dwell on, what we allow to enter into our minds through our eyes will naturally 
affect our hearts, our belief system, how we live, the trajectory of our lives, because the eye is the lamp of the body. So the eye and the heart are connected. This is why research has shown so poignantly that you can't just look at pornography and it go away. Because research has shown over and over again that the images that you look at, it's an eye into your mind and into your heart because they become imprinted in your mind. And images that you saw years and years ago will pop up without even trying to think of them because there's something about what we allow in through our eyes affects who we are even down to the heart level. It it, it affects our longings. So when he's talking about the eye is the lamp of the body and allowing light in versus darkness in, he's talking about at a certain level the heart of who we are and what we long for. What is it that we long for? I would suggest that if we wanted, if we were really honest with ourselves, many of us would say, I really long to be wealthy, to have the comforts that riches promise. And that's our deepest longing. We have so given in to the American dream the idea of being wealthy and getting everything that money promises us is what drives the trajectory of our lives. Now listen, don't hear me saying that being rich is sinful. I'm not saying that. The Bible's not saying that. It is not wrong or sinful to have a lot of money. What the Bible is very clear about is that when we begin to look to money and long for it and worship it in a way that replaces God and causes us to live in a way to where we stop living sacrificially for the kingdom of God and we start living abundantly for the kingdom of self. And we have to address that. I would go into fraternity houses on campus every fall. One of the great privileges that I loved most about campus ministry was that God had given us favor in the fraternity houses. And we would go into most houses and I would speak to the pledges, to the freshmen. And I would talk to them about three lies that all college students believed. And I wouldn't tell them this, but really it was, it, it was three lies that we all believe, regardless of age. But I would just make it appropriate to them. And the third lie that I would always bring up with them is this. We believe the lie that what's external is more important than what's internal. And for many of us inwardly, even right now, we say, well, no, I, I mean, I don't believe that lie because I understand the scriptures and I understand that, that what's internal is way more important than what's external. And I would say, yeah, I'm right there with you, but let me see your life. Because we can say that so easily. No, what's internal is more important than what's external. But then our life screams to the world around us. What's external is more important than what's internal. Because look where I spend my money. Look where I spend my time. Look where my resources go. Because that speaks a lot louder than you just saying that what's internal is more important. Let me give you one more illustration from some quotes from men who got it all. At least from the world standards. W.H. Vanderbilt died in 1885, the richest man in the world. He said this, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John D. Rockefeller was the first U.S. billionaire and the richest man, considered the richest man in modern history. He said, I've made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie 
Second wealthiest man in modern history behind Rockefeller says it just very bluntly, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford, founder of the Ford Motor Company, many of you drive his cars today. He said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. I think about Solomon. Christian and non-Christian alike will widely agree that Solomon was the wisest, richest man to ever walk the earth. And Solomon writes an entire book in the Bible where he says about this, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. If there is no God, if our lives are not centered on God, then everything is meaningless. And he had it all. What do you long for? What are your eyes set on? Lastly, who or what do you love? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That last sentence, for me at least, kind of jumps out as, whoa, where did that come from? I thought we were talking about treasure and heart and eye and lamp. And I was kind of tracking. With, and then all of a sudden, Jesus just drops the bomb. that uh, You cannot serve God in money. Oh, we were talking about money this whole time? He's, asking, he's, he's saying the same thing Elijah did. You cannot, how long are you going to go limping between two opinions? You cannot serve God and you cannot serve money. These are two opposing gods that clash together. It's got to be one or the other. And really what Jesus is getting at is he's getting at down to the heart level, what do you love? Who do you love? Because what you love will determine what you trust. And what you trust will determine what you serve. And what you serve will determine where you lay up your treasures and the trajectory of your life. It's all connected and it starts with what do we love? Who do we love? Paul said it to Timothy this way in, in 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now that verse gets misquoted all the time to say that money is the root of all kinds of evils. That's not what it says. Money is good. It's a gift from God. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. It's what our hearts do with money. We begin to love it in, in a way that it encompasses all of our desires. And it begins to change us to where we begin to serve it rather than serving God. God is our great provider. He is the great satisfier of our souls. Will we trust him? Will we treasure him? Will we serve him? Will we love him? I would suggest to you that if you have a giving problem, you don't have a giving problem. You have a loving and serving problem. Because it goes deeper than giving. It goes to our allegiances, our worship, our longings, our heart. Let me take you back to the Elijah story because I want to take us back to this question. Can I trust God? Will he provide if I begin to live sacrificially? You get back to this story and I left you off, kind of left you hanging where you, you had the two altars set up. And so what happens is the prophets of Baal set up their, their altar and they put their bull on it and they begin to call out to Baal. 
to send down fire. And they do, they do this for hours and hours, all through the morning into the early afternoon. They call out to Baal and they're doing all kinds of rituals and chants. And they even get to the point where they begin to cut themselves in self-mutilation to say, look, Baal, look what I'm doing. I'm sacrificing for you. Where's the fire? And Elijah starts talking trash. Elijah starts saying, and this is straight from the text. This is not me just being inappropriate. He says it. He says, well, maybe your God's taking a nap or maybe he's out relieving himself. Elijah said, where's your God? He's not here because he's not real. And they finally give up and he says, look, he sets up his altar and he puts the bull on it. And then he has servants come and pour gallons of water on top of it to make the point that not only is my God going to send fire, but he's going to send fire in such a way that even though this thing is soaking wet, it's going to be taken up. And there's standing water in a trench that he had uh, dug all around it. And so there's water all over this sacrifice. And then he prays to the one true God, the living God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he says, God, send down fire. And God sends down such a great fire that it doesn't just take the bull as an offering. It takes the entire sacrifice. All of it is incinerated right there on the spot. And the Israelites begin to worship God in that moment. But that's not the end. It wasn't enough for Elijah. It wasn't enough for God to end the story there and to say, well, that was a powerful story. Wow, God provided fire and that was so cool. And I bet people were really fired up after that. Excuse the pun. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. Elijah was not like, okay, now worship the one true God and we'll just leave all these false prophets over here and this false God, we'll just leave them be and let them do their thing. No, you and I have to kill sin. We have to slay it. We have to slay the idols in our lives because God wants us to continue to live out the first commandment. There shall be no other gods before me. And when we walk in obedience to the first commandment, then that means that there are idols and allegiances in our lives and the ways in which we move towards things other than God himself that we don't just look at and go, hey, you're not good. I'm going to worship God, but you stay there. No, he says, kill that. Eradicate it. Deal with it in such a way to where it is slayed and is no more. And so the next part that I'm about to tell you is going to be unsettling because we don't fully understand always why God does what he does in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to get into that today, but here's what happens. Elijah sends the 450 prophets down the mountain. And there's this little brook, this little creek that's at the bottom of the mountain, the Kedron Brook. And he sends them down there, and at that creek, he slays all 450 of them and takes their lives. Because God is serious about our idolatrous sin. You know what happened next? After Elijah obeys God and does what God tells him to do, something comes. Rain. It had not rained in three years. And God provided on the heels of obedience. God provides when we obey him in killing the idols in our life and surrendering ourselves to him in such a way that we begin to give him everything, including our money. He brings blessing into our life. Now, do not hear me saying that there is a prosperity gospel in this. What the Bible does not say is that if we obey God, he's going to make us rich and healthy and wealthy and prosperous in every way and we'll never be sick. That's not the point. The point is this. God always provides for his people even in times when we struggle to obey. Okay, That's one side. But there's another side to it. When we do obey, 
there's an extra provision, there's an extra blessing that comes with it. And when Elijah obeyed God, rain came. Because the false gods had been eradicated. So what do we do? Points. We understand that we can trust God, the provider of all things. And then because we can trust God, then we can have the power through his Holy Spirit to do this. First, to kill, we must kill the idol of the love of money. Now, I did not say we must kill the idol of money. We must kill the idol of the love of money. It's about what do we love. Secondly, we have to understand that gospel reflection is critical to lifestyle generosity. Gospel reflection is critical to lifestyle generosity. What do I mean by this? We've established many, many times from this stage that we are forgetful people. We forget the gospel. We have to think back on it daily. We have to remember what God has done for us. We have to remember John 3.16. Why do we give? Because God so loved the world that he gave. We see the, the giving nature of God and giving to us in the most unimaginable way in giving us his son that in response to his giving, we give. The gospel compels us to give. I heard a pastor share this recently and it gripped me so hard. It, it really, I just thought on it and thought on it and thought of it. And this is what he said. He said it would have been gracious of God. When we consider what our, son, what our sin has done to us and how we have offended a holy God, when we really begin to think of the magnitude of our sin against our holy creator God, then we understand, we begin to understand what we deserve, which is eternal separation from God and hell. And so it would have been gracious of God. It would have been a measure of grace for him to say, look, I'm not going to make hell eternal. I'm just going to pull back a measure of hell there to where it will only be for a time. And we would have to say, that would be gracious of you, God, because I deserve so much worse. It would have been gracious of God to say, look, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll save you from hell entirely. You won't go there. And you won't be separated from me in that sense, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm so disgusted by your sin. I'm going to leave you on the earth, and I'm not going to have anything to do with you, and you're going to live for all of eternity in the quagmire of your sin where things are always broken and messed up, and that's your future. But that would have been gracious because we deserve so much worse. It would have been gracious for God to say, look, here's what I'll do. I'll even bring you into my presence in the sense that I'll be, in, I'll be in heaven with you, but I don't love you. I don't want to be around you. I just am so disgusted by your sin. I'm just going to tolerate you even though you're kind of here around me. And that would have been really gracious. But think about this. God doesn't just take away a measure of hell for us. God doesn't just take hell away. God doesn't just bring us into heaven or on earth and just tolerate us and deal with some things, but just leave us alone. He doesn't do that. What God does and what the gospel reminds us and what we need to think about daily is that although we deserve, because of our sin, eternal separation and judgment from God forever and ever, that what he has done through the work of Christ and through faith in him is he has said this. He said, not only will I take you from that, 
but I will bring you, and through faith in Christ, I will take away all your sin, and I will declare you to be righteous with his righteousness, so that when I look at you, I see perfection, and I'm fully and completely pleased. And if that weren't enough, I'm also going to call you into my family, and I'm going to make you a son and a daughter of the king. And if that weren't enough, what that means is, the implications of that is that you will now be the inheritor of all things that are mine, to where not only will you live with me in eternity, but I will dote on you for all of eternity. I will love you for all of eternity. I will give to you everything that is mine and I will cherish you and be in intimate relationship with you. And the end result is that for all of eternity, when we deserve eternal separation and damnation, is that we get eternal bliss and joy with the God of the universe. That is grace. And when that grace begins to grip our hearts, And when we think on that grace all the time and what God has given, not based on anything we did, what do we do? We instinctively, we gladly, we joyfully give back. We give because he gave. And it is absolutely critical for us every day to live in light of the gospel. And when we dwell on the gospel of grace, one of the things that happens is we give. And it's not just our money. It's our whole lives. Remember the main idea. Treasuring Christ involves trusting him. And trusting him involves surrendering him. And surrendering to him involves our money. Every part of our life, including our money. Will you surrender to him? Will you trust him? Will you treasure him? And will you allow him to compel you to give in such a way that would not only be a blessing to others and to the kingdom of God, but even a blessing to you? Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. And thank you that you have loved us so much that you would do the unthinkable. You would rescue us from the penalty of our sin. And not only that, that you would declare us to be righteous and bring us into your presence for all of eternity, that we may experience the joy of knowing an intimate relationship with you. Father, may we be a people who give generously to your work, to your kingdom, to your church, not because we have to, not because some preacher stood on stage and told talked about giving, but because we are so compelled by what you've done for us that it is instinctive. It is a glad response to give to God. May you continue to be praised as we sing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.